Okay. Welcome, everybody. Let's get into it. Last week, we had Paul give us what I referred to as the short stack of the gospel, which, if embraced, is enough good news by which all people can stand and be saved. The short stack, I guess referring to pancakes, uh, is the essentials of the gospel here in 1 Corinthians 15. The tall stack of the gospel is everything related to the good news. Uh, and it's kind of contained in the reading of the word. It's kind of contained in, in the story of Jesus. That's why Mark in the first verse of his gospel says, uh, this is the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the telling the story of. So the unessentials in the gospel, which are man-made, <coughs> uh, and have been made essentials in many places today, include things that men and women suggest must be included to the good news. Um, like the descriptions of God, um, modality, benedity, trinity, blah, blah, all the things. Water baptism for regeneration. That's part of something that has been added to the good news. You have to be baptized in order to experience the regeneration of the Spirit. Uh, and other things. So, simply put, I would suggest that the good news stands in the acts and in the actions of Jesus Christ. That's where the good news stands. You can kind of take, or in the life of Jesus Christ, you can kind of take him and say the good news is kind of fulfilled in him. His life, death, his birth, his resurrection, who he is, things like that. That's all good news because he came to give it to us. I would suggest today there, are also, there is also something that I picked up from my brother Dave, but I think it's really, really applicable, and that is something that I'm just calling the great news. And you might be like, what? You're going, to, you're going to take something like the good news and say there's something called the great news? In the days then, to his own, it was certainly good news that the promised Messiah had come. I mean, right there, that was good news. He has come. And that he had come to redeem them from the law, whatever was necessary, and to save them from the coming wrath and from hell and the lake of fire, which they faced as a result of not receiving him or for disobeying the law. That was good news. I mean, rejoice, and we are grateful for that. But the Bible itself in a number of places, describes a time when there would be the completion of those things, when he would come and would have done that, and then we would, <clears throat> um, it says, then he would return with judgment and reward. And it says that he would initiate what is called the end of that world or that age. And it would, that would be a time when hell and Satan would be cast away into the lake of fire and be overcome. An age when the world has been reconciled to God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And when God would write his laws upon the hearts of people, not upon paper, as Paul says. And it would be anticipated um, that Christians would therefore live in this new age as members of the new Jerusalem on high. And so because of the timing of the apostolic record and its contents and promises, I suggest that at the end of that age of the good news brought by Christ to them, that we, the Jews called it the age to come, that we are part of this spiritual kingdom. That's even better news. It's great news because it means that we don't have to relate to a brick and morty dust brick and morty, a brick and mortar, dusty Jerusalem. That's the old Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is a new place. That's great news. And um, in this age, we abide in this great news. We don't have to fear for his coming back with wrath and to destroy the earth. We don't have to fear that our non-Christian relatives or children or parents who die are burning in hell because scripture tells us that at the end of the age of the good news, the, great, the, the good news would become great and everything would be fulfilled, which is why I term it that way. It's not to trump the good news. Without the good news, there'd be no great news, guaranteed. But it's just to try to show what he has done for them then, 
called the Euangelon, the good news, and how it's great news now because it's totally fulfilled for us in how we see things. So we are members of that kingdom by his eternal love and grace, and that never ends, Daniel says. His kingdom will never, ever end. That means it's going to be constantly going forward, and he has had the victory uh, over everything except the human will, in my opinion. He's had a victory over all things except the human will, and even the human will he will have victory over as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's great news. That is great, great news. But there would be, um, of course, couldn't be great news without the good news, so don't forget that. And that is the foundation laid for all, but first to them. So, Paul explained last week that this good news, and this is the short stack, is that Christ died for the sins of the world. That he was buried, that's point one, he died, he was buried, and point three, that he rose again on the third day according to Scripture. Uh, which was written to them then. All of that, the short stack good news. He adds in reference to this rising on the third day of Jesus here in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the general topic of his rising on the third day, that um, there are witnesses to this. And so he says, and at verse 5, starting at verse 5 today, so he gives us the short stack good news, and he says, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. That's a really interesting phrase when we get to it, and we'll wrap it up with that verse. So go back to verse 5 with me, where Paul, speaking of the resurrected Lord, says that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. So we're getting a chronology here, right? He's saying he was seen of Peter, and then of the twelve. We have an order he's giving us. And then he says, and then of above 500. And then he says of the tw- uh, James, and of, and of the twelve again, and then of himself. We know that Cephas refers to Peter... And Paul takes time to appeal to the resurrection as a fact to be proved, like all facts, by credible witnesses. This is not faith in a vacuum. This is not, we believe he was resurrected. Paul here, giving the short stack good news, says there were witnesses. And he starts off with Peter. Now, while we must accept these witnesses today by faith, we have to accept these witnesses today by faith and not on fact, because we really can't factually say they saw what they saw. It's almost hearsay to us, long spread apart by time. But if the passages are reflecting fact, a principle is established. And I am not talking about the resurrection of Christ when I'm t- right now. The principle established is that credible faith is based on credible, verifiable, at some point in time in history, witnesses surrounding the event. Faith is not something that we have in a vacuum. Even though it is talked about like we should have it in a vacuum, God always has had witnesses to things. And he's always wanted there to be a veracity to the things that we believe. God does not typically ask us to believe in things that have no material evidences or witnesses. Very rarely, even in the creation, when we can say there were no witnesses there, we could say, well, heaven, the angels uh, were a witness of that. But we, we could say, but we have tangible evidences of a creation. We have a fact that the helicopter tree with those helicopter leaves could not have ever existed in the first place without being able to transport its seeds by virtue of the helicopter leaves. It had to have a creator that gave it the ability to transport the leaves to plant itself otherwise. It doesn't start off as a helicopter tree without a creator. 
We can talk about the human eye. We can talk about all the things that have a creator or a designer. And you can say, these evidences I take as supports of a creator. Other people say, I don't see any support at all. Depends on how you're going to see it. But we do have evidences. That's, that's the point. We have evidences. It just depends on how you're going to see them. So, in the case of the resurrection of Christ, which again is at question here with the Corinthians, because someone there is saying there's no resurrection, probably Sadducees, uh, or at least the resurrection itself, let's say, there were witnesses of Christ, a lot of them, and Paul makes it clear. Now, I'm well aware that to us today who are reading this, we have to take this record on faith. Um, and that faith is less substantiated to us. It's by virtue of a record. But looking at a record that's been handed down to us, we can at least say that in the context of there being some apostles who claim to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded, and that secular historians have validated the existence of those apostles, some of them at least, and that those apostles came out of an actual nation of people that's verifiable by archaeology and genetics and verifiable by religious traditions ad nauseum that still go on today and, and historical places, etc. cetera. Uh, we have historical proofs that at least undergird the idea that some men say they saw the resurrected Lord. That's not vacuum-like. We're not saying that our Messiah was a little tiny green creature that came in the desert, lived, died, rose again, and no one's ever seen him. Or he came out of some place that has no support at all, which is how atheists try to, try to uh, present our faith. But that's absolutely not true. We have more writings to support our Bible than ancient Greek mythology, than anything, by, by thousandfold. So remember, Paul was writing a letter, an actual letter to the people then. And this letter is time-stamped in that age and re relates to their evidences for Jesus rising from the grave. He's telling them, you guys are saying there's no resurrection? Well, let's do uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let me start off by telling you what the gospel is, and let me uh, continue on with the resurrection, which is what the gospel is centered on in the short stack and let me tell you about that. Let me tell you who the witnesses are. And he mentions Peter, who could have been alive during that time. I'm not sure. And in that place and time when his letter was penned, Paul points out that flesh and blood witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were around them, still living today, he's going to mention when it comes to the 500. And he's going to start with Peter, Petros. For those who claim a collusion or a conspiracy to establish a false doctrine through the Flavian dynasty, that is a, a, a whole separate issue. I would suggest that this theory fails to explain why historically we have actual people like Peter who have been authenticated as existing human beings living and dying for the witness of the resurrection. That doesn't make sense with the fabricated uh, Flavian dynasty mystery that it, some people are saying uh, is how the gospel came forward. So, uh, what's really intriguing to me, though, is that Peter, though mentioned first here in Paul's record, was Peter the first witness of the resurrection? No, Peter was not. Paul does not say he was. All he does is he mentions in his list, he mentions Peter's, Peter first. He doesn't say first to see the resurrection was Peter. Because that would have been incorrect. And Peter was not. And remember, there were problems with women speaking in church. And so Paul probably didn't want to give a real chronology to try to throw up a whole bunch of flames into the problem with women speaking in church at the time because of all the historical stuff we've talked about. But the first witness of the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. I mean, if he was really going to be on track with a chronology, he would have said, and the first one to see him was Mary Magdalene. Now, you can say, well, that's kind of cool to know, but it's significant, you guys. Very significant. Before we move forward, I'm of the opinion 
that things in Scripture are not really accidental. Uh, I see God as a master artist. And so master creators, like, like master filmmakers, they use everything to bring about, to point to what the other things are saying. They don't just throw stuff in for no reason at all. If you're watching a movie and suddenly the director has some guy walk over and pound on the window of a car and then walk up the street and pound on another window of a car and it seems like it's just aberrant, there's a reason for that. There's some symbol going on. And so we see that often through scripture. And I don't think God is any exception to this. So while here in our text, Paul does not mention Mary witnessing the risen Lord first, there's some important stuff happening that should be recognized. And it begins with kind of just looking at John 20 and Genesis 3. John 20 and Genesis 3, where they're kind of mates in Scripture. They say that every Old Testament passage has a mate with the new. I don't know if that's true, but they say it. So let me read to you the honor restored to women through this just single thing where Paul has said uh, he was first seen of Peter or seen of Peter uh, in my list. John 20 says this, the first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early. That's how it starts off. Jesus is dead. He's been in the grave. Apostles are scattered or they're grouped together hiding somewhere for fear of their own lives. And we start off and it says, and the first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene. Now, who was Mary Magdalene? She was a woman who Jesus healed, and she, he cast out seven devils from her. We don't know what that meant. We don't know what it means. Of course, historically, it, people have said she was a prostitute, and it was all sexual and stuff, and we have no evidence for that. But we have, it saying the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene. How did Mary Magdalene get possessed of, a de- of seven devils? Go back to what was the genesis of Mary Magdalene being able to be possessed of seven devils? Who made it possible? It was another woman who made it possible. Her name was Eve. And we read about her in Genesis 3. On the first day of the week came Mary Magdalene when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher. This is a place of death. Okay? And she sees the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Mary Magdalene came to a place of the dead where the dead were laid, where the dead are laid, death. Mary Magdalene returns to this place of death in a garden. And the result was of death was because of a woman to start with. Eve's taking the fruit and then Adam following her. Ready? Verse 2 in John 20, then she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other apostle, who's John, he doesn't ever use his name, whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid them. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher, and so they ran both together. The other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. It's believed that John included that. He was younger, Peter was older, and John and Peter had an ongoing competition. And so John includes, the other one did outrun Peter. And stooping down and looking, and saw the linen coast lying, and yet he went and not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and see the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about, to, about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came into the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. And as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They had been told over and over and over again that he was going to rise from the dead. I'm going through the book of Mark right now with a fine-tooth comb. They were told so many times we're going to rise from the dead. They never understood what it meant. And so it says right there in verse 9, they, they didn't know the scripture. that He must rise again. They were ignorant of what it meant. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. <laughs> it's hilarious. Then the disciples, having foot races, look in. They don't, John says, they didn't know what it meant. And they go back home. Listen, verse 11. But Mary, but Mary, but Mary stood outside at the sepulcher weeping. 
And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. I suggest Eve did a lot of weeping too. I don't have evidence for that, except that Eve did praise the Lord for the, rece- for the conception of a son after Cain. We hear nothing of Adam ever again. We don't know what Adam did after he went. But we do have evidence of Eve's mouth praising the Lord. So we have some evidence of her heart toward God. And sees two angels sitting in white. Peter and John didn't see the angels. Mary Magdalene looks in and she sees two angels sitting in white, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. After Adam and Eve sinned, God posted a cherubim with a flaming sword east of paradise to keep mankind out. On Easter morning, two angels appeared in this garden, not banishing mankind from the presence anymore, but inviting Mary in. They, they didn't scare her away. They didn't say, this is holy ground, leave. They said, come in. And they said to her, woman, why weepest thou? And she said, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. She didn't know he was resurrected. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, first witness, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why weepest thou? Why, whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. His body's been stolen. In the Genesis account and in John 20, we discover two gardens, the Garden of Eden, Joseph of Arimathea, the garden where the uh, tomb was, and we have two gardeners, don't we? Wasn't Adam told that he was the gardener over the Garden of Eden to take care of it and tell it it was his? And now we have Jesus being mistaken, the second Adam, as a gardener. He's in this place, same thing. But Mary, once demon-possessed, because of the fall, is welcomed into this garden, not cast out by the angels who were there present in the tomb, where the second Adam overcame sin and death in the grave. In Genesis, we have that Garden of Eden. Here we have the Garden of Joseph of Arimathea. And in Genesis, Adam is told to tend the garden. And here, John uh, 20, Mary assigned the title of gardener to the Lord, who welcomed her and, and, and who now tends his church, as Adam was to tend the world then. Actually, tends the world. And uh, verse 16 in uh, chapter 20, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. As a result of the fall, women are subservient to their husbands. Just ask any Christian man. They ostensibly became their masters as a result of the curse. As a result of the curse. In Christ, who came and did it already, women are emancipated from this subservient role. In and through Christ, who is their true master, which is why Mary Magdalene calling him master shows us the proper relationship now that women have to men, that wives have to Christ first, then to the husband. The archaic notion that we're still under the the realm of the fall because of Adam is wiped away in Christ, in marriage and in relationships with males and females. You forget that you're going back to the Old Testament. But if you include Christ in the mix and what he did, it's not by mistake that Mary Magdalene turns to him and calls him master. Because that is the master of the woman now. He has emancipated her from the effects of the fall, which was subservience and allegiance to her husband. And that's if she chooses to have a husband. Verse 17, Jesus says to her, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Listen, but go to my brethren, Mary, female, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. In the garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, go out, you're out of here. You guys went against me. I don't think it was mean. In love, out of here, okay? Put cherubims here in the garden to protect it. Here, the second Adam gives the first commission 
and direction to the first human being on record of him rising, and it was a female. The second Eve, it was Mary. And she was representational of Eve, not literally. And he told her, go. He gave her a direction. He says, go to my brethren and do what? Say to them, proclaim to the apostles, Mary. Proclaim to them, right? That I ascend to my father and to your father. Whoa, suddenly the brethren realized, my father, he's my father now? You always talk to the, about God being your father, Jesus. Now you're saying my father and your father and to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Isn't it funny that we would take a cultural issue that Paul had to deal with women in the church speaking and tell them, you can't speak. You can't speak. As if it's gospel, right? In the church, that it's a shame. But Jesus, the first person he commands, commissions to go and speak is a woman. It's because we have the fall, nation of Israel, Jesus overcoming everything, Mary here showing that, but it takes time, it takes cultural change, it takes wisdom, it takes the spirit to allow those changes to work through. When we've gone out 2,000 years from the cross and we're still looking back over his victory to what happened in the garden, we have missed the point completely. And we have missed the point that Paul said, in Christ Jesus, there's no difference between male and female, bond and free, Jew and Gentile, you see. We keep going back to the nation of Israel with all of our stuff instead of stopping where that stuff was completed by him, completely by him, and allowing him to reign in the things that we do on this earth now. When we do this leap over him and back to the old way, what we have is this. And we have church playing, and we have fugliness, and we have ourselves like cave people. Still, when he has done it, miss that, miss that point, and you'll forever be stuck in what people call the New Testament church. When that was really a lot of culture of those apostles trying to keep those believers uh, then together and in preparation for him to come. So... So much to be seen in the context of Scripture. I would suggest that in these two narratives, we see God's great plan for the redemption as Jesus unravels the curse, the fall, brought about by Adam and Eve in Eden through the death and resurrection of the second Adam and the type of Eve, Mary Magdalene. And where the results of Genesis 3 is pain, slavery, to sin, demonic possession, alienation from the presence of God, death, the events in John introduce us to healing and unity and acceptance, breaking down of all that stuff in Christ, deliverance from demons, full restoration, being able to have once been demon-possessed, to be able to walk into the sepulcher and converse with angels, and then see the Lord first and be commanded by him and be female, we have complete deconstruction of the former stuff, if you're willing to see it, if you're willing to abide by it. You want to cling to all that other stuff? It makes you feel powerful and makes you think that you're holy, and then you're just jumping over the, you're playing leapfrog over the cross, right? Both narratives are changed by women. You understand that? Jesus did the changing. But in the first place, Satan introduced the fall, first through Eve, change. And then Jesus, the second Adam, introduces the reconciliation. And the one to pronounce that, to run and go and tell and say, was the second Eve by type. Additionally, we might say that through the resurrection of Christ, women who lost their voice at the fall... Um, Mary Magdalene was reappointed with one. Now, 
I hope women don't take this as some means to justify uh, liberation and superiority or anything like that. That would be stupidity, just like it's stupid for men to be misogynistic and controlling. But there should be a level playing field, absolutely level playing field here. And when we play any sort of games with it, you know, we're still, we're still leapfrogging over the cross backward. So uh, emancipation, though, didn't occur quickly or universally. Still hasn't, right? And, but in the age of the great news, this ought to be the case. And it ought to be exemplified by the interaction of the risen Lord and Savior with Mary Magdalene. So Paul mentions first that Peter was a witness of the resurrection, but he wasn't the first. Then, even though the apostles were only 11 at the time, because Judas had killed himself, Paul still refers to them as the 12. Um, it might be because of Matthias. Ju uh, Judas is dead, and Matthias replaced him. I don't know if he's referring to the 12 uh, like that. It seems like it. But he says the 12. And, um, Jesus, no, Matthias hasn't happened yet. Sorry, mistake. So he referred to them as the 12 before Matthias was called. So I don't know why he does that, but he does, collectively, the 12. Jesus appeared to the apostles, what he says is the 12, but it was absent uh, Judas, at one time, which we read about in John 20. And that was in the absence of Thomas, and then once in the presence of Thomas. Because Thomas was present the second time, it seems like that's the time that Paul is referring to. So Paul doesn't say uh, he appeared to Peter and then to the 11 and then to the 12. He just says he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and it must be the one including Thomas. I'm guessing. Uh, if you wonder about his appearance when the apostles were on the Sea of Tiberias, there were only seven people there, and two of them aren't said to be apostles or disciples. So we don't know if all seven were apostles, but we don't see all 12 named. So it probably wasn't when uh, Peter, uh, Jesus told Peter, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? It wasn't then, because there were only seven present in total there. Peter, uh, Paul continues, and he says at verse 6, After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. Don't miss that. Of whom the greater part remain unto this present. You have a problem with the resurrection believers at Corinth? You really are seeker of truth? Go take a mule ride over to Jerusalem and go, or, or wherever this happened, probably Galilee, and see if there's any of those 500 roaming around like Paul says in his letter. And ask them if they saw the risen Lord. 500's a lot. We wonder how the gospel went out. This was a grand start, right? 500 people is a lot of people to have witnessed Christ in his resurrected body, Okay. So he opens the floodgates up and he says more than 500 witnessed his resurrection. Location not given, uh, which is in and of itself interesting, but the naming of a spe specific location probably uh, would have brought the witnesses into some sort of danger. Either Roman or Jude Jude uh, the Jews who were after to stop Christianity. If Paul would have written this letter, and they were all centered in Galilee. The northeast section came from that neighborhood. You know, the Roman army could have been sent by the Jews to slaughter that. So he doesn't give us a location. He just says all at once. Okay? We do see in Matthew 28, 10, though, where Jesus says to the woman who were at the sepulcher, Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. So... Then we read in Matthew 28, 16, the 11 apostles went into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Because Jesus had spent most of his public life in Galilee and he had made most of his disciples from that area, taken them from that area, it seems possible, it seems probable that those disciples who came from that area had family and friends from that area and they went back to Galilee and they said, and it, it doesn't say they were prohibited. We don't have Jesus say, don't t tell no man. We don't see that at all. So it seems like they probably invited everybody they knew who was a believer, maybe, maybe even some non, I don't know. Come and see, he's going to meet us. Knowing human nature and the lack of prohibition to not do this, it seems like more than 500 is... Uh, 
possible and that it was in Galilee and it probably was in the mountains where the apostles were. What we do learn, though, is that of all places Jesus preached, one of them, it seems, was capable of producing 500 people who had enough faith to believe or at least interest or curiosity, or they could have all been devout that Jesus is Lord. One location out of the places he went had 500. So we know that in his preaching that there was a a fairly substantial number of acolytes and followers and disciples and believers. Because in, in one place, Galilee, there was at least 500. At least those willing, you know. Referencing these 500, Paul says in the epistle, with a greater part remaining unto the present, which I just touched on, which means they're still alive. They can be appealed to. So we're seeing in the record an appeal to the living evidence that Jesus, that God relied upon for the gospel to get going. It's living evidence there that Paul is bringing up to the Corinthians who doubted the resurrection. Then he is not telling them to believe in a vacuum. He's saying, he's appealing to it. We don't have that same ability today. But we do have what I mentioned earlier, the record of it, and then what's substantiated materially and archaeologically in the formation of that record. That's not the same thing. So, however you want to see that, why that is, I don't know. So they're still alive. Corinth, they were denying. And right here, Paul says, there was Peter. There was the 12. And then there was 500, more than 500, first 10 witnesses, still alive. Um, And the point is, kind of, I think, if the testimony of 500 won't do it for you, I don't think the testimony of 10,000 will do it for you. You know, if the testimony of the apostles won't do it for you, what's the testimony of 500 going to do? We have to remember we walk by faith. We do have to acquiesce some things into the realm of faith. But our faith is not based on non-evidence. We have it. Seek it. Challenge it. Test it. And it, we, it is tested in our world. Let me tell you, they, the critics of Christianity test the living heck out of every word here. And you can get dissuaded by that and you can be pushed aside by it. Or you can just keep your mind open, hear all the facts and pursue and you'll see that the things are supported. They're not made out of nothing like they try to imply on Facebook. So regarding these witnesses, Paul says that some are fallen asleep. And that has uh, lent to uh, Ellen G. White, I think, or Mary Baker Eddy, one of the two, coming up with soul sleep, which is the idea that you don't die and go to a place. You sleep in your grave until the time of the resurrection. That's called soul sleep. And it's passages like this that cause people to believe in this thing called soul sleep. But I think it's a fabrication of an imaginative mind. And and, um, I think it's just a term they use, sleepeth. And it doesn't necessarily mean it literally. Paul adds, after that, he was seen of James and then of all the apostles. Interestingly, the appearance was not recorded by the writers of the record, of the apostolic record, that James had seen the Lord. That's not in the apostolic record. We discover it here in Paul's words. Uh, But it is mentioned in the apocryphal book called the Gospel of the Hebrews. Apocryphal books, there's a number of them, and they don't have as much authority in terms of apostolic authenticity, so they aren't included into our Bibles, Protestant Bibles. They were in Martin Luther's Bible. Uh, Also, just to let you know, the Orthodox Church has a lot of apocryphal books in their Bibles. The Catholic Church has a lot of apocryphal books in their Bibles. Well, in the Apocryphal Gospel of Hebrews, it's called, we learn that James did see Christ resurrected. So Paul is actually citing from that, uh, what we would call apocryphal gospel here to say that James, or he got that information from somewhere else. And um, I believe he got that information from somewhere else. Jesus was on earth for 40 days after his resurrection And Paul mentions the most prominent appearances as a means to substantiate his resurrection. This James, most Christian leaders and scholars suggest, was James the Less, and he was the brother or the cousin of Jesus. 
We don't know if he was the son of Joseph and Mary or if he was a cousin. They we're unsure. Catholics say cousin. We Protestants or people who follow that line of thinking say he was an actual brother. It's up to you. But according to Acts 12, the other James was dead by the time this apostle was written. He was, he was killed off by Herod. By the way, just to let you know, that other James was never replaced in Scripture for those who believe in apostolic succession. We know he was killed. We don't read anything in Scripture. And the apostles got together and replaced James with Benny. Uh, they say nothing to show you there, this idea of apostolic succession wasn't there. But anyway, he was killed early on. This James that we're talking about is the author of the epistle called James and was stationed in Jerusalem. And when Paul went there after his return from Arabia, Paul met him. Uh, according to Galatians 1.19, where Paul says, But of the other apostles saw I none. He had seen Peter. But of the other apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. So we have a, a scriptural connection of where J Paul had possibly run, not possibly, where Paul ran into James, saw him. And it's highly probable that Paul said to James, I was on the road to Damascus, and your brother, <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to me, and he knocked the heck out of me and sent me on a new direction. And it's probable that James said, and he came to me too. And that's why Paul is including this, and James, the Lord's brother. Either that, or he took it from the apocryphal record of the Gospel of Hebrews and used it, but up to you. And then Paul adds, and then of all the apostles, I, not, I don't think this was by the Sea of Galilee, as I said, because there are only seven, as I mentioned, so perhaps there was a final meeting of the apostles, Perhaps this was at the Ascension. Uh, perhaps there were all sorts of numerous meetings that we don't know about uh, spread out over the 40 days that Jesus walked the earth. Then Paul adds his final witness to the resurrected Lord uh, that he includes here at least. And he says at verse 8, and last of all. Now, that's what he says. Last of all. He was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. I think Paul is saying out of all the times mentioned, or at least the end of all the times mentioned, he was last of all to see him up to that point in time of the letter. You could read it last of all to ever see the resurrected Lord until his come, coming. I don't know how you want to see it. I see it as in context of the letter. I used to use this against the Mormon church when Paul says, and last of all, it was me. I used to use that, but when I look at the context, he was probably saying, last of all of this list I've given you, he was seen by me. Even though it doesn't bode well for my argument, it works better with honesty and context. We've noted that the requirements of apostleship for the Lord were that they were called by him, which is why Matthias doesn't match. Peter, before the Holy Spirit fell on him, Peter suddenly decided, let's cast lots and call somebody. So, uh, and they called Matthias, and we never hear a word about Matthias again. But the Lord called Paul, and we see all kinds of things from Paul as a result, right? So, the, the requirements is the Lord has to call you to be an apostle himself. The Lord trains you as an apostle. He did the 12. He did Paul. That's who trained him according to Paul. They would be witnesses of his resurrection. That was the good news. The short stack already given. That's what the apostles were doing. He has risen. Do you believe in him? All right. And then most of them, all but one, gave their lives for that witness, meaning they unabashedly shared it, no matter who the audience, they weren't embarrassed. It wasn't too sacred. They shared it and they were killed for it. Except John, but the rumor says uh, that they tried to kill him, but it didn't work. So all the apostles meet these, these requirements, though they're not all original, telling us that there's no question whether he rose from the dead. Now, you can take all this and say it was made up by the Flavians, a group of Jews who said, we need to give the Gentiles something so they won't war with us Jews, so let's give them Jesus. Let's make up this thing. So they sat down with the Old Testament, created a New Testament, made Jesus this hero who rose from the dead, and let's put it out to the world. And there are a lot of people who are buying into that. But I tend to think that the unity of the two uh, Old Testament and the written uh, apostolic record 
sustain a continuity that cannot be denied, along with the secular records, that there are people who saw him, that witnessed to it. That is why Christianity is where it is today. I mean, boom. So um, the passage proves, though, that the Apostle Paul claims that he saw the Lord Jesus in the same body that the others had seen him in, the resurrected body. Uh, And so, otherwise, his assertion that Jesus lives and rose from the dead would be baseless. He had to be a witness of that body. Jesus took that body, uh, nails, prints, and everything like that, to be seen, right? Paul adds, regarding himself, as one born out of time. This is really important. Uh, It's not, this phrase is not, this word is not used anywhere else in the record, and it means abortion as one born out of time. So he says, and last of all, he was seen by me, an abortion. That's what he says. It doesn't mean abortion in the sense that we think of it. It means a, uh, what is it when a woman gives the premature birth? Stillborn, stillborn birth. But abortion is the same thing back in those days. So we might be tempted to think that Paul is implying that there was something that was not good about his witness of the resurrected Lord. But I don't think so, and we'll know why as he continues on here, and we'll wrap it up with this. The following verse that we'll read help us understand what Paul meant when he was saying, I was but a stillborn in the, in, among my brethren who were children of God. I was like an abortion. I was not like a living, thriving a believing apostle, right? In other words, he was as worthy to be an apostle as an aborted baby is worthy to be a living child of a family or a stillborn baby. They're not viable. He wasn't alive in it. He's claiming an untimely birth relative to his service for the king. And it's a phrase of extreme humility. Paul is going to hit us with a combination punch. A right, a left, a right, a left. The right is going to be, I'm humble, I am humble, I am nothing. The left is going to be, I do great things, I do great things. He does it in a combination, alternating in these next verses. Because that's what it is on the two-way street with God, in the relation with him. Okay? So, speaking of himself relative to the church, Paul says in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard my conversion in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. He says, I was a, a stillborn child. In Ephesians 3.8, he says, Unto me who am less than the least of the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says in Philippians 3.5.6, circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, touching righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. We're talking about a guy who had complete law, complete perfection, almost not complete, but real righteousness in him according to the law and was dead going around killing people. In 1 Timothy 1.3, he says, speaking of himself, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And so here he says, I am the last of the apostles to see Christ. I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. But then he adds at verse uh, 10 through 11, ready? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Listen to what he says. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Talking about all the apostles, all the 500 witnesses, right? Yet not I, but the grace of God, which is in me. Therefore, he ends it, whether it be I or they, the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. That is a fantastic four punch. Boom, 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 he gives, right? In these verses, we have so much insight and wisdom in that two-lane highway. It's a two-lane highway, folks. There's a great propensity for people to say, I do nothing. 
at all. And there's a great propensity for people to say, God does everything totally. And there's a propensity to say, I do it all. I work my way in my salvation. But throughout the, the record, we have God calling, empowering, giving, and people receiving, choosing, acting. It's a two-lane street. And when you get over that and you understand that, you'll be able to be used by God to do the things he wants you to do, right? I have a group of guys I went to the school of ministry with for two years full-time. Most of them came under this culture of, I'm just waiting for the Lord to act. And they're still waiting for the Lord to act. They simply do nothing, right? He's acting. He's calling. He's inspiring. He's using you and the gifts he's given you to do things with what he's given. But it's not you. And Paul will make that clear. So in his flesh, Paul humbly admits not to being worthy at all. He was a stillborn child relative to the apostles. Um, pretty graphic when you think about that. But having admitted this, he then writes a line that's applicable to us all, and he says, but by the grace of God, here comes the, the left, I am what I am. I stand by that myself. <laughs> by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am an abortion, definitely in my flesh, not up to par with anybody at all. But by the grace of God, through his son, Jesus Christ, I am what I am. You don't like it? Let my aborted flesh flip you off. I don't know what to tell you. I am what I am. I'm not going to feign it. Paul didn't feign it. God created us. He uses us as we are. So Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In case we think it is by or through our merits or goodness that we are called or elected by God in this life, Paul makes it clear that it's the grace of God who picked him up and filled him with the Spirit as a, as a uh, um, stillborn birth. And it's by the grace of God that now he is what he is. All that Paul is presently is as an apostle can be traced through God through his Son. No merits of his own. And this is the case we all have to admit. So start with that one. Prior, nothing. Prior, zero. Because that's the case. But Paul then moves on to the next thing. And this concept is troubling for many as they can't understand how this next thing works. The best illustration is given by Jesus in, in John 15, which I'll just quickly articulate, and I love it because he uses it. He says, I am, the, I am the vine. You are the branch. No vine, no branch. You can't exist without the vine. He pushes through all his nutrients for you, the branch, to create fruit. It's very simple. He says, my father is the husbandman. My father's going to walk through and he's going to pick you up as a branch. Man, you're this long and you're about ready to produce great fruit and he's going to cut you back. He's going to wash you off. He's going to choose to hook you up to the vineyard. He's going to do what he wants. You're just laying there. You don't have any capacity to do anything but receive what you are as the branch. It's complicated. But the branch, apparently, does produce fruit in and through Christ. Jesus says, you cut that branch off, you've got nothing. You're nothing at all. He makes it clear in John 15. So they've got to be tapped in. Branches and out there exercising. Branches and out there building houses. The branch is waiting, like my friends in the Calvary Chapel. But the branch is allowing, as we could say. If a branch was dead and withered, a farmer might say, well, that branch didn't allow for the nutrients of the vine to get through to it. It was clogged here or something like that. Therefore, let's cut it off, throw it in the fire. The branch allows Christ to work through it, to bear the fruit. Right? So there's the whole thing, right? Paul understands this about himself. He takes no credit for what God has done in and through him. And after establishing that, he says, And his grace which was, which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Which says to me, it can be bestowed in vain. In Paul it wasn't. Perhaps in others it can. That's why Jesus gives the parable of the talents. Parables of the sower. 
but I labored more, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Here comes the back, the back punch for God. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. We have that two-way street. That two-lane highway relationship between God and men, there's an offer from God. There's a reception from humans. God offers strength. Humans accept the strength. He offers insights. Humans receive it or not. Use their own or his. In all of it, God is doing the planning. He's doing the building. He's doing the, all the other stuff through him. It is something that God teaches us as we learn to walk with him. It does not come naturally to our flesh. It does not come easily when we are prone to take control. When you are a control person, I, I think they have the hardest time in the world. Perfectionists, they have the hardest time in the world with the good news. I feel for them, and I know some of them. Some of them in my family. And I think it's easier for, you know, just a, you know, dude who's just like, ah, God's working through me, man. It's a little bit easier for them. But the perfectionists, oh, no, no, no. I got to do this. I got to do that. You know, they're the Marthas running around making sure, but they kind of cast off the good part. That's what you're seeking for, is to really let go. Really let go. It comes a lot with the ways of this world. The money, the money stuff, that is like right on you. If, you. if someone says, I really do let God work, just check your money. Just see how it works with you and money. When things start going downhill, I'm talking about people in ministry, by the way. If you're in ministry, you just test it. You, I'm going to follow God and all he says. You just watch while he takes it down to very, very little and allows it, cutting you back on that branch, right? But will he come through? Does he come through? Somehow. Mary and I were just talking. We were just talking as we drove over here. We were driving in a car that Larry Norris's friend's mother, aunt, donated to the ministry out of the blue from Arizona. I don't know her about two years ago. Beautiful car. And sitting along the long side of the road in downtown Salt Lake City, across from where we live, is our only car. And it has a broken hatch, and it's covered in snow. And Mary and I are driving in this car that was donated to the ministry. I said, isn't it amazing that in advance, God knew that the truck that was donated to us would break down, that we'd only have one car, and if we only had one car, you would have to take that car to work during the week, and I would have to take an Uber to go work or work from, the pl work from our place or something like that. He provides in advance. He does that for you. That's the concept. It's not just monetary. Spiritual blessings, fears and faith. Monetary is the least of it, but that will test us, right? So he says, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Why? He says, I labored more abundantly than they all. He says that. That's that left-handed punch. This is what I did. But then he makes the clarification, steps back, but not I. But the grace of God which is in me. Keep that balance. Always him who provides, him in us. It's not just rhetoric. Oh, it's just God in me. It's not just rhetoric, right? All this is Paul's way of explaining that in his life, like in the, all of our lives, whatever is good is of God. And, and, and we can receive it or not. And while we will accomplish things for and by him, in Paul's case, he unabashedly says, I've done more than the others. He says that, not bold, not out of uh, pride, as it could be read, but he's just showing that he has allowed that grace to operate through him. And, and we can do it too, is what I think he's saying. We can allow that to happen, and it does happen. It's intriguing that Paul first likens himself to a stillborn or aborted fetus by comparison with the other apostles. They're living, they're walking with Christ, they're being trained by him, Paul is going around, he's persecuting the church. He's dead spiritually. He compares himself to that. But now he says, and yet I have now, receiving the grace of God in me, labored more than them all. Being given life, quickened by the Spirit. That's what we want, right? So we pray that this view would be the case with all of us. No matter our former state, no matter what we came from, 
as believers, being quickened by the Spirit, risen from stillborn life to new life, willing to receive whatever it is, whatever graces it is that God gives us, to then labor more. And that labor, I am convinced, is a labor of love. It's not a labor of religious works, unless, unless the works for Jesus come out through your labor of love. But don't be burdened by that. It's labors that are spirit-led. Labors that are spirit-led produce the fruit of the Spirit in you, the fruit of the Spirit in the recipients. That's the labors that he's talking about and that will allow uh, these labors to come out of us as branches in the vine. And Paul concludes our time with, Therefore, whether it were I, it says, or they, the other apostles we've talked about, so we preach, and so you believed. And he moves us now into a more deep, prepared topic of the resurrection. He's established Jesus was resurrected, and now he's going to start addressing, you guys are saying there's no resurrection. So I'm going to tell you all about it from my apostolic uh, perspective. And we'll get to that next week. Questions, comments? We said question and comments, and we had someone just run out. Don't blame them. Good to see you guys here. I put my glasses on. Snowy day, you still made it. Um, That was a great teaching, Sean. And I just couldn't think of maybe a possible parallel um, in the scripture to your uh, to the story of Mary at the sepulcher. Earlier on, when Jesus was in the middle of his ministry, he goes to Samaria and meets a woman at the well. And whether we're talking about a, a cavern in the wall or a cistern in the ground, it's still um, an interesting place where Jesus met this woman. Yeah. And uh, she recognized him eventually as the Messiah when he said that... Uh, from this point on, you'll be given living water. And so what does she do? She goes into the city and tells the man all that was told, and they they heard it. And I can't remember, I was looking at the scripture here. Um, um, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. And when the Samaritans had come to him, he urged him, to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Wow. So I just kind of saw a parallel there. That a a, that's another example. So is it interesting that in, in Jesus' realm, the women were allowed to go and preach? He gave them no obstruction. But we think they can't come into a church building and do the same. It is unbelievable if you, if you really think about it. Uh, great point, Danny. Thank you. This, is, da- this is David. David. Uh, follow, following up on that, uh, we have to remember that John did not witness the woman at the well. He learned of it from the stories that were told by her back in the town. How do, you, how do we know that? We know that John wasn't there because it was only Jesus and the woman. Oh, you mean John, the one who's writing it? Right. right. He had oh. to have learned it. Okay. From from the people. They show up at the well and they go ahead, Danny. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I misunderstood Dave, but the apostles saw him speaking to the woman at the well, and they were sort of chastising him for having yeah. a conversation. No less, no, uh, you know, with a Samaritan woman, yeah, uh, alone, and uh, so that's where the witness came from. Later is what Danny's pointing out. Yeah, yeah. Good points, though, guys. Anything else? Ray, did you want to share something about sleeping in sin? I, I <laughs> just teasing you. All right, we were having kind of a joke beforehand. Good to see you all. Hope you have a good, uh, safe. Holy day season. Let's pray. Oh, is there a list?
Here it comes, Dave. The communion wine is not available till after meat. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> All right, let's pray, you guys. Lord, we, we boy, we want to be uh, sharing this message the good news, the great news with all that uh, come before our path. And we know that you authorize, ordain, set us apart, have called us out of the world to do that, regardless of our gender, regardless of our education or our abilities, that we are the branch and you are the vine and we can be used by you in spite of all these things men want to put upon us, that we're free in you to speak to share. And we do it not by compulsion. We do it naturally as we abide in you. We have uh, people in our congregation who are suffering with different ways in, at home. And some people who don't even attend here that we have on our list. And we pray your spirit and blessing upon them. All that who aren't on here, we pray you'll bless them and, and support them and sustain them during this holiday season especially. And we pray that they will not feel alone, that they'll improve in their health and in whatever situation uh, they face. We pray for travelers safe on the roads today, continued healing for all those recovering from surgeries and cancer, Robert, David, Mary P, Tammy, Liz, Diane, Diana, comfort and peace for all that have lost family and friends, especially the families of Ken, Gracie, and Chet. And I pray for our sister uh, Lisa and her battle with the ravages of cancer and also now a pending divorce and um, financial problems that are heaped upon her head. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that we'll exit here now and we'll be full and warmed by your spirit with a love that should accompany that. And when we fail to love, which we all do, you'll remind us gently and you'll tap us on the shoulder and tell us to forgive, tell us to apologize. Tell us to be soft and, and malleable in your hands. And we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.